DeFi apps operate without a central service exercising control over the entire system. So there's not a bank regulator. There's not people in the way. There's not governments. It's just this free-flowing, open you know, source technology that can operate without somebody overseeing their, quote, rules. So as you might imagine, there's a lot more inherent risk. The idea of a bank is that it's not risky for you, the consumer, because it's, number one, insured, and number two, highly regulated to make sure that it keeps that type of insurance. Through DeFi lending, users can lend out cryptocurrency like traditional banks, like a traditional bank does with fiat. There's another in one of the acronyms. Fiat is just government-based currency. So I'll say it again. Through DeFi lending, users can lend out cryptocurrency like traditional bank does with government-backed currency and earn interest as a lender. Borrowing and lending are among the most common use cases for DeFi applications, but there are many more increasingly complex options too, such as becoming a liquidity provider to a decentralized exchange. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, relax your mind, and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Welcome back to the higher standard, everyone. It's your boy, Chris, and I probably sound a little different. I'm using a new audio setup, but that's probably not the reason why. My wife and I, over the holiday, actually Christmas Eve, both came down with the stomach flu, and it was a miserable and challenging Christmas day. You know, you want your our son's two years and eight months old, and we really wanted him to enjoy Christmas. This is the first time he was cognitively aware of what, you know, tearing the presents was, and he communicate. It was just so adorable. We were so eager to do it. We've been doing the elf on the shelf thing, and just to get as sick as we did, and obviously he was sick too, all at the same time. It made it really tough, and I'm still recovering a little bit. We're all good now. I'm probably the worst of everybody else. And it's really just my voice. So, But I had to jump on. I had to get on the mic and start talking to everybody about some things that are really changing the way we think about the world. And me, as a banker, you know that I'm in banking. You know that I'm in finance. You know that I love real estate. Well, one of my other passions, cryptocurrency, NFTs, and the blockchain have now coalesced into something. And if you looked at the title of this and you clicked it, you know what it is already. The first U.S. real estate NFT has hit the auction block. And in about a week from now, the recording from now, it's going to be sold. And that's exciting, man. It's, it's incredibly exciting. And there's a lot of hurdles and a lot of roadblocks. But I thought it would be an interesting way, an interesting time to take the first world nft real estate transaction dissected a little bit it's actually the same people who were responsible for that 
and get into what's happening now specifically with this property and then break down some of the language. One of the things with cryptocurrency, the blockchain and NFTs, there's a lot of industry lingo out there. People throw around stuff that that can really just be unnecessarily confusing because they're just not using simple words. They do that a lot in banking, too, where they use a lot of acronyms and a lot. It's just stupid. Like, just say simple stuff. Like People say, oh, it, you know, in a non-fiat, listen, fiat is just government-backed currency. I don't know why people don't just say government-backed currency. It's not like fiat, you know, makes you feel like it's a simpler or more understood or shortens it up or something like that. I just think about a small car, but whatever. It's weird, but let's get through it. I'll try to break down what I can. I'll get into a little bit of the more technical side of stuff without getting super technical at the end. My, my purpose here, though, is that I can give everybody kind of a background of what's happened, what's going to happen, and how the technology works. And then from my perspective, as somebody who's in the traditional space and kind of lived it you know, for all of his adult life, really, how this is going to have some roadblocks in what I see on the horizon. It's really cool and fascinating, so bear with me. Let's talk about the first ever U.S. real estate NFT, which has been listed in Florida. Ironically, now dubbed, and I've never heard this before, I heard this today, the most crypto-friendly state. I always thought it was Wyoming because of the, you know, the cryptocurrency regulation and some of the bankruptcy stuff that's going on there, which established a futures market for cryptocurrency. But whatever, if they want to call themselves that, I think every Every progressive state, at least in the, as far as finance go, is rushing to be the most crypto friendly. So by way of backstory, the world's first NFT real estate auction actually took place back in 2017, but it really wasn't as sensational. When I give you the backstory of who did it and why, you can kind of see it was really them just trying to be a landmark and set the precedence for innovation, not so much that it was like, hey, we're going to do this because this is really going to change the landscape of how things are done. And frankly, it didn't. That was four years ago, right? So the apartment, which was first sold, believe it or not, was the first property to be sold using blockchain technology back then in 17, was owned by Michael Arrington, who is the founder of TechCrunch in Arrington XRP Capital. So obviously a guy who's in that space has motivation to do this, right? So he decides to sell his property, which is located of all fucking places. Kiev, Ukraine. So again, kind of sketch, but whatever, you know, he sold it as an NFT to further showcase the power of the blockchain and the technology and the innovation that could, you know, take place in the real estate industry if this were to happen domestically in the US like is happening right now. But this is where it gets a little weird. In order to sell the apartment as an NFT, the process operated slightly different than a traditional real estate sale, as you might imagine, and the ownership of the property was actually held and recorded in the Ukraine as a United States-based LLC. I guess that's good news if you're in the U.S., because a U.S.-based LLC being a, a suitable vehicle to transfer ownership of you know who owns the NFT, owns the LLC, is a really easy way to get into the United States and make that same thing happen because all those entities are domestically created here, but kind of weird how they did it in, you know, Kiev and Ukraine, but whatever. The auction winner became the owner of the NFT that gives the rights to the LLC, like I alluded to, right? So this dude, Arrington, signs the proprietary development legal papers for the NFT to transfer the ownership to all future buyers. So it's kind of... It's an established thing that he put together. I'm assuming he did that with DeFi in smart contracts, which I'll get into in a little bit, but there really wasn't a whole lot out there that I could see. From what I could best tell, it was an Ethereum-based auction, but the auction 
winner got got the rights to the LLC via the ownership of the NFT. So anybody who owns the NFT has rights to the LLC. Pretty simple, right? The company that helped him do this was a company called Propy, P-R-O-P-Y. They developed the smart contracts, the legal framework that is suitable for the U.S. market and will soon launch the real estate NFT auction platform and the upcoming NFTs, but is also the same company that is doing right now that Florida transaction. So you can see how Propy got started with this essentially beta tested four years ago, this smart contract technology, and is now actually going to do it in Florida under the same effective structure that happened in Ukraine. So I guess, you know, I guess it worked out and it wasn't as shifty as it sounds. So the agents and consumers can choose between Proppy offers solutions to make a normal offer and an NFT auction to make a public offer, right? So I guess it really doesn't matter the functionality of how like you go through them as a broker or an agent or you make it direct. They just have two different vehicles in order to make offers. You go effectively through their auction platform, which is on their web their website. I assume you can do it through something like OpenSea.io if you really wanted to list the NFT that way. But it sounds like they have their own auction kind of framework set up for it. And, you know, it makes sense. If you want to, you're proppy and you want to own the ecosystem, you might as well own the entire ecosystem, not just the technology behind it, right? So for this particular auction, Proppy partnered with a couple companies I'd never heard of. One called Scene House, H-A-U-S, because they're fancy, to conduct the, the bidding and Helio Lending to secure financing uh, to future real estate NFT owners. And that's interesting to me, too, because if you own NFTs, and you want to get financing on them. There are a couple avenues to do that with decentralized finance or quote DeFi, but you know that's a riskier value proposition than obviously going to a traditional bank. And and we'll break that down to I guess a little bit, but at least to the extent that I can. I'm not the world's best subject matter expert on all this stuff. It's just really fascinating. So here you have a property in Kiev, an apartment which sold, and it sold via this NFT. Smart contracts were in place, transferred ownership, and that NFT's owner is effectively the property's owner via their ownership in the LLC, and the LLC is recorded in a traditional titling system. So in the title system, what happens is you go up and down the chain of title, right? You go all the way back to when title was created for the property or when the title was first issued for the property way back in the 18 or 1900s, and all the way back down to make sure every owner who sold it in that chain of title sold it to the person who sold it to the next person and so on and so forth. And if you think of it as a daisy chain, you want to make sure that the people who sold it to that person were in fact a bona fide seller or a real seller in right in time. Because you don't want me to sell you a property. You go and you hold on to the title in paper form and not record it. And I sell that same property to somebody else and then they go and record it. And now you have a rogue deed or a rogue title, but you were sold it first. Who owns the property then? The person who was the first person to record or the first person who got the actual property? Was it the person who did it? It was bona fide if the second person knew. There's a whole, you know, essentially a semester in law school that's dedicated to erase notice and, you know, notice jurisdictions and all different types of ways that this can be handled legally. But for the purposes of this conversation, you don't need to worry about all that. Here's what you need to think about. Okay. The property is owned by the LLC. It's recorded on title. They did that before they took this tokenized property and sold it. So they can sell the ownership underneath that property in the form of the NFT, and the title in the physical world doesn't change. It's still that LLC. Now, if you're a bank and you're in a traditionalized financing system, that causes a number of problems, not the least of which is BSA AML. And I'm not going to explain what the acronyms mean. Remember, banking has all these weird-ass acronyms. But what I'll say is banks have a duty to know source of wealth and source of funds and to know who owns a property. 
There's all sorts of reasons that we have to, from a compliance perspective, check and make sure that we know that the person isn't, for example, a terrorist or money laundering or a drug dealer. And, and because of the, the restrictions in, you know, really responsibilities that are imposed on banks in the financial system and banks effectively rent their charters, right? Whether they're state charter, DBO, or now DFBI or FDIC, and, you know, they're federally chartered, the FRB, whatever they might be. They have a responsibility to act within the rules and the compliance and the regulation as set out by law in the state and the country that they're in. And because of that requirement, they have to make sure that they're following those rules. And if they don't, they could lose their charter, lose their ability to be a bank. So banks are very, very, very protective of doing that. And I don't know that this structure as it listed right now will give banks the ability to do that. Because let's say a well-known terrorist wants to buy the NFT, buys the NFT on the blockchain. But the title is still the same, and the bank has no idea. So is a bank able to loan on that? I don't think so. So you're going to have to go to non-traditional or decentralized finance to get that. But let's get back into the Florida, okay? The Florida deal is interesting. It's historical for both real estate and blockchain industries, obviously because it's in Florida. It's a U.S.-based. This is the first time we're doing it. It's a Florida-based investment property, and I don't really have a whole lot of detail yet as to what kind of investment property it is. It could be in commercial. It could be single-family, non-owner-occupied. I'm sure there's a number of reasons why that's, that's the case, particularly in Florida, which is a homestead state. If it's owner-occupied, it could be a lot more challenging. There's a lot more regulation there. So it could be that. I don't know. You own a U.S.-based entity, again, which owns the property, so a very similar structure as we saw in Kiev, right? The NFT ownership rights and sorry, the NFT equals ownership rights and you just store it in your crypto wallet. So the same way you have an NFT of, I don't know, a board eight yacht club or whatever the hell it is that you have in your crypto wallet, you open up, you know, your Coinbase wallet and there's your little NFT. Well, that's a effectively exactly how you own the real estate here with this property in Florida. Should you win, the sale will happen via blockchain and you can bid for the property with ethers. Again, Ethereum based, right? Like I suggested. And the first auction will not be fractional ownership. And that's key because you have to understand there's a lot of companies that are trying to get in this space. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to fractionalize the ownership in homes so you can buy into a percentage of a property, particularly for an income property. That means the property, let's say it's a large multifamily complex, right? Let's say on average, after expenses, it generates $10,000 a month in you know net revenue. After paying all of its expenses and whatever debt there might be, if there's any debt on it, you really shouldn't need some if you're doing this kind of structured finance. In a non-fractionalized ownership, you would be entitled to that as the owner of the NFT. In a fractionalized structure, you would be only really getting a portion of that. Now, if it's like you know ten people, then you get you know a thousand bucks. It can be interesting, but then you start getting the SEC in syndication, and there's all sorts of challenges there. Then you're also taking that single owner in the form of an NFT, and you're making it several people. It becomes much more difficult to trace. It becomes a very complex network. The next thing that Proppy says in their public disclosure about this is it's a DeFi asset, again, decentralized finance, and you can easily borrow is their statement. I don't know if it's really truly a thing that you can easily borrow, but let's get into a little bit about what this DeFi is. I've kind of teased it a little bit. So the DeFi applications, they really aim to recreate the traditional finance system. So think banks, exchanges with cryptocurrency. And most of them, run on the Ethereum blockchain. It's also why I've been a fan of Ethereum you know, for the longest time, essentially since I got into cryptocurrency, because I believe their back-end blockchain has more possibilities there. There are other options for DeFi, and 
There are other you know blockchains that 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 are really trying to displace Ethereum, but I think Ethereum is by far and away the front runner. That's my opinion. There are people who are probably just going to disagree. The difference is that DeFi DeFi apps operate without a central service exercising control over the entire system. So there's not a bank regulator. There's not people in the way. There's not governments. It's just this free flowing open you know source technology that can operate without somebody overseeing their quote rules. So as you might imagine, there's a lot more inherent risk. The idea of a bank is that it's not risky for you, the consumer, because it's number one, insured, and number two, highly regulated to make sure that it keeps that type of insurance. Through DeFi lending, users can lend out cryptocurrency like traditional banks, like a traditional bank does with fiat. There's another in one of the acronyms, fiat is just government-based currency. So I'll say it again. Through DeFi lending, users can lend out cryptocurrency like traditional bank does with government-backed currency and earn interest as a lender. Borrowing and lending are among the most common use cases for DeFi applications, but there are many more increasingly complex options too, such as becoming a liquidity provider to a decentralized exchange. And that's way more complicated than we need to get into for the purposes of this conversation, but there are endless opportunities here. But as you may imagine, interest rates are typically more attractive than with traditional banks, so, you know, you get higher interest rate returns because you're trying to get liquidity in the system and they have a reason to try to bring you into these networks. They want you to get paid for the types of risk that you're taking on. The barrier to entry and to borrow is low compared to that with a traditional system. However, in most cases that I've seen, the only requirement to take out a DeFi loan is the ability to provide collateral with other crypto assets. So when you think about the context, you get paid more, the ability to entry, the barrier to entry is lower. That's only because you have to put up collateral for everything. Now, if you were to go up to a, to, to a bank and get a loan for your home, yeah, you got to put down collateral. Your home is your collateral. And the money you put into your home is the leverage point. But when you think about it in the way that most Americans, on average, first-time home buyers put about between 6 and 7% down on their first home. And if you go in to buy a home and you put 20 25% down, even 30 35% down, you're not putting a tremendous amount of money down. That's cash, fiat, government-backed currency you're putting in. That's your buy-in. It's only, it's, it's a, let's say at maximum for the purpose of this conversation, you put 35 or 40, even 40% down, right? Well, in the cryptocurrency world, things are very volatile. There's a lot of asset risk there. If you're Ethereum-backed, it's probably not been as volatile as other cryptocurrency, but you've seen wild swings in Bitcoin. Definitely Doge ain't doing so well. And there's reasons why certain cryptocurrency are, are better than other cryptocurrency, but there's a lot more volatility. The markets are 24-7. So when you do this type of exchange, could matter dramatically. And it, it, it seems to me, at least from what I've seen, that the collateral required is far greater than it would with typical fiat or government-backed currency because of those wild swings. So there's pluses and minuses here, and there are risks that people need to appreciate. So Users can some, sometimes offer their NFT as a non-fungible token as collateral, for example, uh, depending on the DeFi protocol used. So it, there are some cases where if you have a Bored Ape Yacht Club and you want to borrow against it, if it is in such high demand or such a high value proposition to the market, there are some people who will lend to you based on that NFT, that token, that frankly JPEG of a monkey as collateral. It, it's a riskier you know, thing, and so you're probably going to charge you more for it, but there, there are options out there in, in that world, in that decentralized finance world. There are factors that contribute to why DeFi is much riskier than a traditional bank, and this is clearly one of them, right? No regulation, no responsibility, decentralized, all those things are great, they're fun, they're fluffy, but they all carry 
risks, and I've mentioned risks a couple times. So let's let's be specific about three risks that we all need to be aware of as this world starts to get bigger. Number one, technology risks. Smart contracts are collections of code that, that we talked about already. They carry out a set of instructions on the blockchain. So if Tom sells this NFT, then that NFT transfers to the next person, and Tom may have residual ownership rights. If you're a music artist, you want to get paid residuals. Or if you want to transfer a piece of real estate in the real world, there might be a smart contract, which gives you ownership in things like an LLC, for example. Right? Those are essential for how the DeFi blockchain concept works. So if the smart contract collections of code carry out that set of instructions that DeFi applications run them, the developer's code is bad in any way, shape, or form. If, that, if it's bad, the contracts will be bad and the software is only as good as the underlying code. So you have technology risks. Now, obviously, Proppy is a big company. They've done this before. They did it four years ago. Granted, it's in the Ukraine and you know, it was a little bit of sensationalism, I'm sure, four years ago when they did it. But they've been at this for a long enough time to where you think that they perfected their code. And this is the first time they're running at it in the U.S. I would imagine they're pretty comfortable with their relative technology risk and making sure that their, their contracts, their smart contracts, actually execute and don't leave any room for error. They've probably beta tested the shit out of that. But you never know. And these things happen. And in the world that we live in, you know, the, these things can get weirder and weirder with time. I don't really know how borrowing is going to work. But this could be an interesting way to solve the rubric, at least for right now, with non-fractionalized ownership of how to trade real estate that way. The second thing is asset risk. Okay, So when borrowing on a DeFi application, you typically offer other crypto assets owned as collateral, like we talked about, lots of volatility. So for example, DeFi protocol Maker, an actual company named Maker, requires borrowers to collateralize their loan. 150% of the loan to value at a minimum. I know other lenders in this space, some of which I'm big fans of that are nowhere near that high. They'll let you borrow up to like, for example, 50, 55% of your Bitcoin value. So it's not as punitive, but I mean, it, it is definitely not going to be like traditional lending from a bank. And for most of us who are not like cash rich, to get this much money in the system is impractical and improbable at best. Let's just call it that. Since cryptocurrencies are volatile, their value frequently fluctuates. We know this. If there's a downturn, the crypto assets uses collateral most sharply decline in value, and some may see their positions completely liquidated because those smart contracts can work two ways when you borrow against cryptocurrency. So, I mean, this is why most people use something called stable coins or coins that are, are considered to be more stable. Again, one of those buzzwords that sounds more fancy, but essentially like Bitcoin, and hence the 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 borrowing leverage is a, li is a little bit more, you know, in your favor, 55% versus 150%. You know, percent. And those are supposed to be pegged to fiat in some ways. So stable coins that are pegged to government-issued currency are considered to be less volatile. I, I would say that Bitcoin is not necessarily one of those for a number of reasons. But again, there will be those people who listen to this and call me crazy. And I understand that. So essentially, the coins, whether stable or not, they... They, they pose an interesting problem for this whole process because you have liquidity somewhere, you get it into the form of cryptocurrency, and now you're buying a piece of real estate. There's already been arguments that NFTs are essentially being used to launder money or to pump and dump and to all the, do all these things. And the regulators have already kind of swarmed in, particularly the SEC. You know, they're really focusing on this because I think this will ultimately wind up in their space not to mention you're going to have governments that are going to step in. And there's a number of countries all over the world that have already kind of banned this and outlawed you know, cryptocurrency trading. 
because it does when you think about the context of what fiat this government you know government-backed currency really is cryptocurrency really undermines that i mean stable coins which are linked to it i guess you could say help support it in some way or structure but undermining the centralized currency of a nation is going to have ramifications that are far beyond the 20 minutes that i've allocated for this podcast that's your asset risk right number three your product risk it, it is always important to note that unlike a traditional bank there is as i've said several times no requirement for regulation and no insurance on your money when you use DeFi. you don't get fdnc insurance you just don't get it though DeFi loans are collateralized with other crypto assets borrowers using DeFi protocols cannot be held accountable otherwise if they are unable to effectively pay back a loan so you've got to think about the set of circumstances that you're in you go to a bank, you can provide a personal guarantee in connection with the loan. There, banks in states like California, for example, they have two paths when it comes to real estate, real estate ownership in order to foreclose or take a property back for you. California is a non-judicial foreclosure state. You can go through a non-judicial foreclosure. California is a single action rule. I can take back a property in the event of foreclosure. Now, there's all sorts of rules and, and structure in place that I'm not going to get into from a legal perspective for, to protect the homeowner who lives there if it's owner-occupied, but an investment property in the form of an LLC like this property in Florida, for example, you can take it back unilaterally. There's no protections there because it's considered a, quote, business purpose, hence the reason that it's probably an investment property in this use case. That property you can take back, but subject to the understanding that if there is a deficiency Meaning if you take back the property and it's worth less than you were actually owed, the loan that you made against it, you cannot go after the individual guarantors beyond it because you cannot pursue a, quote, deficiency judgment. That's the trade-off of using a non-judicial foreclosure in California. States like California, there are several of them out there. In a traditional judicial foreclosure, you can do that, but it costs the lender, the bank, much more money to go through a legal process, to go to court. It's not this one action, hence the one action rule title. You actually have to go through a full legal process, a full judicial foreclosure, and it's a much more lengthy and costly process. And then when you actually get a judgment against somebody, for example, with, let's say the, the, the property is not worth as much as it was loaned on and there was waste and the person who owned it didn't treat it right and they devalue the property in violation of the terms of their contractual agreement, the bank might want to pursue that route. But just because you get a judgment against someone doesn't mean you're going to collect against it. It's one of the biggest farces in the U.S., you know, legal system is that just because you get a judgment, you're going to get made whole. Getting collecting on that judgment is a whole different conversation. So, I don't want to I don't want to belabor this too much, but this is a really fascinating time. You're going to have a property in about a week from now in Florida that's going to sell as the first U.S. NFT real estate auction, and it's an exciting time to to really be watching this space. And there's a lot of attorneys that I connect with that are in the the regulatory compliance perspective. There's a lot of people that are in the DeFi world. There's a lot of people that I know that are in the blockchain world and all these worlds are colliding in this really, really cool way that I think is going to make things interesting and dynamic and it's going to speed up how things are done. But then you layer in how regulation is going to come in and really change how some of this is, is, is done or thought about at least because you're going to get some structured rules here. You're going to get some rules in place to prevent money laundering, fraud. And you don't want that drug dealer or that terrorist being able to buy into things. And you certainly don't want to devalue the government's currency, their fiat. So I hope it, I hope this sheds some light on some of this, you know, for some people. For me, this was very, very confusing when I got in. There's still some stuff that I scratch my head and go, what in the shit is, I, don't, I still don't get it. 
And that's fine. You don't have to get it. Hopefully, some of the terms at least make sense. You're going to hear a lot more of this. It's going to become a lot more commonplace. I always appreciate you guys tuning in. I love how much support I get for the show. It has been nothing but resounding and awesome support from all of you out there. And to hear how many of you hear these episodes and tell me that you like certain things and certain details, it really it really warms my heart because I didn't know if anyone was going to listen ever. I apologize for all the throat clearing and the voice and everything else. It, it, it's been a, it's been a long week, but I was super excited to share this with you. Hopefully, you know you think it's cool, and if you don't, well, at least you're up with the times and you're hip. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you were listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, so be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.